front. They're going to make their way to the back with Bibles in hand so that if you need a Bible, don't be shy. Just get their attention and they will give you one of those. And it is a gift. Keep that Bible. It's yours. Bring it back each Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. We have paused our series in the book of Acts to take several weeks on the topic of prayer because I see it as a needed emphasis in my own life, as I'm sure you do in yours, but also in the life of our congregation when we pray together, especially when we pray when we are together in our home groups, our community groups. We all need improved prayer lives. And if God is going to receive His just praise for what He accomplishes, then it will be in response to our having asked for it in prayer and then worshiping Him for His goodness in answering. So we've started where a series on prayer must begin, the model prayer that Jesus gave to us in which He gives six petitions, six exemplary requests with which He says we should approach God. This prayer is not primarily for the purpose of recitation because Jesus says in introducing it in, in verse 9, this is how you should pray, not necessarily what you should pray. This prayer gives us priorities and it gives us categories for our thinking when we pray. And it's noteworthy that of the six requests, the first three have to do with God before we ever get to requests directly related to our own lives. So in the outline that you should have received when you entered today, major point number two says we should talk to the Father about the Father. And we have seen in recent weeks that we should, as we say there, ask that His character be displayed. That's hallowed be your name. And we should ask that His kingdom be established, your kingdom come. And we left off last week having covered the first part of that third request which is found in verse number 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we left off last week having looked at what God's will is in this prayer, but today we want to pick that up and see what it means for God's will to be done as the end of verse 10 says, as it is in heaven, and then see the final two requests in this model prayer, or final three requests in this model prayer. So let's bow together and ask God to help us. Father, we're thanking you that we are here because you've allowed it. You've placed it upon your calendar of our lives. You know every moment that's been ordained for us. You know how many days each of us has. And you have allowed our health. You have allowed our freedom. You have given us the desire to be with you, to be with your people, and to learn of you in your word. We ask you to help us to do that. May we be clear in what your word tells us and its implications and make application of those to our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you've missed any of the messages, as with all of our classes and all of our uh, uh, worship messages, those can be found on our church's website. But last week we saw that this third of the six requests that Jesus gave is about the moral, revealed will of God as opposed to God's sovereign or decreed will, which is always done. But in a fallen world, God's moral will is not always done because people sin. 
which is by definition contrary to God's desires. None of this in a fallen world is according to God's original design, nor will any of it be present in the new heavens and the new earth when God's plan for His earth has been fulfilled and all sin and its rebellion are finally put away as the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, details for us. In the meantime, though, both earth and heaven, both earth and heaven, have the presence of evil, but only earth has the dominion of evil. When Jesus spoke of how God's moral will is done in heaven, and now these 2,000 years later, there was and is the presence of Satan from time to time actually in heaven. We see this in the book of Job where, you may remember, Satan presents himself to God. The Bible says one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. Please notice that Satan has to present himself to God Almighty. And as you read on in the book of Job, you see that he can only do with Job what God allows him to do. But for now, and for God's good purposes, God uses evil, though He doesn't create it. He uses it and does allow Him, Satan, wide latitude, especially on earth. And so Peter wrote this of Satan and his activities. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Notice what Satan is called in Scripture, in fact. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He is the the God of this world. God Almighty has given him, for a temporary time, sway upon earth. And Satan is clearly active with his malevolent intent on earth, but he's also active in heaven. We saw that from the book of Job, and then in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Here's what it says, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has now been hurled down. And so Satan is actively accusing us before the throne as hypocrites. This, what Revelation chapter 12 says, will occur in the future. His access to heaven will be completely removed and he and his minions will be confined to earth where they will be ultimately utterly defeated by the Lord one day and removed from the earth entirely, confined to the lake of fire. Now, putting all of that together, one commentator has said, one of the most pervasive and persistent popular myths about Satan pictures him, complete with pitchfork horns and pointed tail, as being in charge of hell. In reality, Satan is not in hell. In fact, he's never been there. He will not be sentenced to the lake of fire until after his final rebellion is crushed. And when he does enter hell, Satan will not be in charge. He will be the lowest inmate there, the one undergoing the most horrible punishment ever inflicted on any created being. Far from being in hell, Satan currently divides his time between roaming the earth, seeking someone to devour, and being in heaven where he also engages in his doomed attempt to overthrow God's person, purposes, plans, and people. One way he seeks to do that is constantly accusing believers before God's throne, ceaselessly haranguing God about the unworthiness of believers, hypocritically appealing to God's righteousness, 
to further his own unrighteous aims. The unachievable goal of his accusations is to shatter the unbreakable bonds that inseparably link believers to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no possibility of that happening, however. Since no one can snatch a believer out of the hands of Jesus or the Father, we're told in John chapter 10. But still, Satan works on earth to turn God's children against him, and he works in heaven to turn God against his children. But saving faith and eternal life are unbreakable realities. His, Satan's theater of operations, includes both the heavens and the earth, and the war of the ages is being fought at every conceivable level, moral, ideological, philosophical, theological, and supernatural. And so praying that God's moral will be done on earth as it is in heaven does not mean the absence of evil, but the absence of evil's dominion. Satan dominates the earth with God's permission for a time, for now, but never in heaven. One day he will be banished from the earth as well. Now, though, at present in heaven, only God's moral will prevails, whereas on earth evil often seems to triumph, as we know. The book of Revelation, chapter 12, speaks of, this, of a future war in heaven which will of course, only happen because God allows it, and that rebellion will be summarily put down. And so we pray that God's moral will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we do that, we are praying that evil be restrained on earth as it's restrained in heaven. We're asking that when it does rear its head, that it be met by swift and sure justice. And more positively, we are asking that God's world be a place where righteousness is the norm rather than, than evil. To pray this, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just like asking for God's character to be displayed when we say, hallowed be your name and God's kingdom be established, your kingdom come. When we pray this, your will be done on earth as in heaven, we are committing ourselves personally to live consistent with what we say we want. And so we will consistently strive to avoid all that is in this world that's contrary to God's moral will, refusing to participate in much that the world calls, for instance, entertainment. I'm planning to watch most of the Super Bowl tonight. I can't remember if I have ever watched a halftime show. And I won't be watching it tonight. My soul and my sanctification and the moral will of God that I say I desire does not need to watch Rihanna or anyone else gyrate in front of me. Or to have the faux wardrobe malfunction or whatever else and what other kind of garbage the world is going to put forward for us to watch in the name of art and entertainment. For some reason, for the same reason I should say, I, I don't ever need to watch the Grammys. I read about this year. 
that there was a, a performance, I've seen some pictures, that looked like a picture of what most people think of as hell, being celebrated. It confirmed for me the wisdom of not participating. And friends, there ain't nothing like that going on in heaven. And Jesus said to pray, your will, your moral will, your revealed will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Justice is righteously meted out in heaven against any unrighteous attempt by the evil one. And to pray then this request means we want to see justice done on earth. And we want to see justice done on earth, whichever corrupt politician it is that's committing the crime, whether from our party or another, because we despise it all and we despise it all because of what we love, righteousness. More accurately, we despise it because of who we love, the God of righteousness. To pray for God's will to be done is to pray for Satan's will to be undone. Three requests in relation to God. And now the final three requests in relation to ourselves. And Jesus gives them in that order. Speak to the Father about the Father first. The late John Stott said this, in the Christian counterculture, our top priority concern is not our name, kingdom, and will, but God's. Whether we can pray these petitions with integrity is a searching test of the reality and depth of our Christian profession. And so in the outline, I say we should talk to the Father appropriately, we should talk to the Father about the Father, and we should talk to the Father about the family. Now notice that the next three requests go from your to our. From your name and your kingdom and your will to our bread and our debts and our deliverance. And Jesus says, as we talk to the Father about the family, the first of the requests in that category, the fourth of the six that he gives us here, is asking about physical matters. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. This request assumes that all that we have comes from God. But that fact, which should be clear enough, is shrouded for us in our time and place since none of us here, I hazard to say, are farmers or ranchers. And so that means that the means of food production is not something that requires our effort or thought. The stuff we eat is grown and raised by others. It goes through processing and packaging in several steps and probably several places and then is transported to a warehouse or a distribution center and later delivered to the store from which we purchase it so it just shows up there thanks to the miracle of capitalism. And when I say the miracle of capitalism, uh, I'm only partly joking. It's, it's amazing how goods and services can be moved through a system that we're blessed to have, honestly. When I was in college in an economics class, uh, we were assigned to read a short essay, a famous essay written in 1958 called I Pencil. It's a classic. You can, you can find it on the internet, I Pencil. And it's a classic written from the perspective of what looks like a simple number two pencil. 
that goes into the details of how intricate and involved is the process of pulling together and manufacturing to distributing all that goes into that simple pencil and all that happens, all of it happens in a way that allows us to go to a store and purchase it for a matter of a few cents. Now, all of that was back when anybody cared about pencils. Nobody uses writing instruments pretty much anymore, but you know what I'm talking about, I trust. But because we have a system that beautifully and efficiently does all of this, so that we just pay people to do it rather than having to do it ourselves, then we can easily forget what James said in James chapter 1. Every good gift is from above. Coming from the Father. In Jesus' day, people understood that very easily because it was an agrarian society, so most people lived off of what they raised and grew themselves. One bad weather event could mean no food for weeks or, or months. And even when things were going well in terms of planting and harvest, most workers were day laborers, meaning they worked a day and they got paid for that day, and the wages were typically so low that it was just enough for the next day. So this, when Jesus says, give us today our daily bread, it's asking for our needs from day to day, the necessities of, of life, including shelter and clothing. The Apostle Paul said it this way, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Notice Jesus and Paul are speaking of the necessities, not the luxuries of life. If we're going to go in prayer to God and we're going to ask Him for luxuries of life, we run afoul of James chapter 4 and verse 3 that we saw last week. When we ask, we sometimes ask in order to spend it upon our own selfish desires. So that's our physical material needs. And related is our health needs to go to, with which we go to God. So God bids us in this, in this category, Jesus says, come, give us today our daily bread, the necessities of life, and he's bidding us to come for our, our physical health to be sure as well. But church, congregation, if we are going to improve all of us in this area of prayer, one of the things we are going to need to do is have a church-wide list of prayer requests that is more than what some have humorously called the organ recital, where it's just a recitation, a recital of all the organs that are failing. That's important. We can and should and will pray about those things. But for many of us, if we're not careful, prayer becomes simply that. These are our ailments. If we're going to pray along the lines of what Jesus said, then we'll need to order that, and we as a church will in this coming year. Now, although our needs are secondary to God's glory, our needs are not, Jesus is telling us, unimportant. Remember to whom we are speaking. He's our Father. And he's our Father because if we've come to Him through Jesus Christ, then we are His children, and He loves us, and He cares for us. And so Jesus tells us to ask for our needs, starting with basic necessities, but he delights to give good gifts to his children. 
In fact, in the very next chapter, in chapter 7 of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that all parents instinctively and naturally enjoy giving good things to their children. And then he said, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so we ask, whatever it is that we believe that we, we need. Now, I'm going to read an illustration from a book on prayer that I've been consulting for this, for this series. I'm afraid it could be misconstrued to promote irresponsibility because you could come away with, I just pray to God and He takes care of it, and so I don't need to do things that God has assigned to me my, myself. So if you will hear it without assuming that, then I, want to, then I want to read it for you. It's an illustration from the life of a man named Billy Bray. He was a godly Christian known for saying, I must speak to my father about this. He felt he had to pray about everything. When I read about him, the author says, I was reminded of the following story. An elderly believer felt that God wanted him to attend a two-day Bible conference in a city about 10 miles away. He packed a lunch and decided he would walk and save the bus fare. On the way, he met a young seminary student who was also going to the conference. At noon, they sat down to eat their lunch. The young man prayed and thanked the Lord for the food and asked his blessing on the conference. The old man did likewise, but added some personal requests. Father, he prayed, I really need a pair of shoes, and I'm asking you to supply them for me. And Father, I believe you really want me to hear the messages at the conference, and you know I cannot hear too well, so I'm trusting you to get me a good seat. And lastly, Father, I have enough money for a motel, but perhaps you might move on one of your children to exercise Christian hospitality and open their home to me for the weekend. The seminary student was obviously upset. He chided the old man for the way he prayed. It was bad enough to ask for a pair of shoes, but to expect God to supply a home to stay in is just a little too much. When they arrived at the church, the place was packed. There was standing room only. The old man and the student were leaning on a railing that went across the back of the church. The old man had his hand cupped to his ear, trying to hear the preliminary announcements. The student was smirking from ear to ear and thinking so much for that good seat. There was only one empty seat in the whole place, and it was in the front row. A young lady was sitting in the next seat, and she kept turning around and looking to the rear of the church. When the announcer said, we will open the service with our first hymn, the girl called an usher over and pointing to the rear of the church, whispered in his ear. The usher walked directly back to the old man and said, Are you hard of hearing? Yes, the man replied. Well, a young lady in the front row is saving a seat for her father, who's a surgeon. He told her if he's not here when the service began, it meant he's still in surgery, and she was to give his seat to someone else. The young lady would like you to come up and sit with her. The old man raised his eyes and said, Thank you, Father. And the student stood with his mouth wide open. In this particular church, it was the custom to kneel in front of your seat to pray. When the old man turned and kneeled in the front row, everyone on the platform could see both the seat of his pants and the bottom of his shoes. After the service was over, the chairman of the meeting came up to the old man and said, Brother, I don't know how to say this since I've never in my life done anything like this before. I do not in any way want to embarrass you, but I noticed when you prayed, your shoes are so worn, your socks are showing. I own a shoe store, and it seemed to me that God kept telling me to offer you a couple of pair of shoes. They are last year's style, but brand new. Would you accept them as a gift? The old man smiled and said, yes, I will. I prayed about that need today, and my father has answered 
The shoe store owner was overjoyed and said, praise God for the privilege of being the answer to your prayer. The young lady was amazed. She asked the old man where he was staying during the conference. He said, I'm not sure. I think my father has a room reserved for me. <laughs> she said, your father, why, you look like you're over 70. <laughs> and then she laughed. Oh, you mean your heavenly father. Please wait right here until I get back. She went into the pastor's study and a few moments came out and said, I phoned my dad and he's out of the operating room. I told him about you and he said, I must meet that good brother. Ask him if he would please spend the weekend with us. The old, the old man smiled, raised his eyes, and said, thank you, Father. Do you believe God can do that? Do you believe God does care for his children like that? Then, friends, we go to God with what we believe that we need and trust him in his wisdom to provide it in any way that he sees fit. We talk to the Father about the family, for physical matters, but also spiritual matters. As we ask Him about these spiritual matters, there are two categories into which what Jesus says here fit. The first is asking for familial favor. That is, favor for those who are in the family. Familial. And when I say favor, I mean we ask for gifts of grace, His favor, because we are part of His spiritual family. And the first of those is in verse 12. And forgive us our debts. Now, you may be thinking, I thought when I came to Christ that all of my debts, my sins, have been forgiven past, present, and future. That is true. There is no sin that you have committed or ever will commit that will change your relationship with God such that will keep you from His eternal presence. If you belong to Him now, then you will be in His presence in eternity. But there is the time being. There is the here and now and our relationship with God and the intensity and the intimacy of that relationship. And that can and is affected by our sin. And that's why 1 John, writing to people who have had all of their sins forgiven in terms of heaven and eternal life, says this famously, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. This is about the quality of our relationship, not the fact of our relationship. When we come to Christ, we have a relationship that will last forever, but the quality of that relationship depends on whether we're demonstrating our love for God by obeying Him. And when we do not, precisely because we are His children, we are moved to confess and seek restoration of intimacy. Sometimes people ask me, how can I know if, if I'm a Christian? I'm having doubts about my salvation. And I ask them, one of the questions I ask is, do you care about your sin? Are you grieved and convicted about your sin? If you are, then that's a very good sign. 
Because the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is not the presence or absence of sin. That's not the difference. We all sin. In fact, the verse just before that one, 1 John 1, 9, verse 8 says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's not the presence or absence of sin that shows we belong to God, but notice it's our reaction to it. And the child of God cares about that and goes into the presence of their father and confesses and seeks forgiveness. The second of these spiritual requests that we bring before God for familial favor is in verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now that's stated in a way that can be confusing because... Although the Bible does teach things like from the book of Proverbs, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps, still our sovereign God does not put us in situations that are designed to make his children sin. James chapter 1 says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So what is this? Why is Jesus saying then, lead us not into temptation? New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says this, lead us not into temptation is a figure of speech called a litotes, L-I-T-O-T-E-S, L-I-T-O-T-E-S. It expresses something by negating the contrary. For example, if we say not a few, it means many by negating a few. And doing that, we produced a litotes. In John chapter 6 and verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. That I will never drive away is a litotes, meaning I will certainly receive all who come to me. So this request to lead us not into temptation means to lead us into righteousness, into situations where far from being tempted, we will be protected and therefore kept righteous and we will then be delivered from the evil one. And do you understand, dear friends, that you need that protection desperately because you are vulnerable, because I am vulnerable. Jesus said to the Apostle Peter, Simon, Simon, his Jewish name, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Notice Satan has asked, meaning he has to get permission. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Without the protection of the Lord on our lives, all of us in our own strength would surely fail. And so we pray, lead us into righteousness, lead us away from these things to which we are vulnerable. We pray to the Father about the family, asking for our physical needs, our spiritual needs as part of the family, His familial favor, but that is based upon, I say in the outline, forensic favor. Because verse 12 says, forgive us our debts, but it says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
I'll explain what that forensic idea is in a, in a bit. If we do not forgive others, it's a sign that we ourselves have not repented. Last week in our service, I asked for the scripture reading to be from Matthew chapter 18 and the story of the unforgiving servant. But I thought I was going to get to this point last week, but I obviously did not. And we're going to look a little bit at Matthew chapter 18 in just a bit. So this is a request for our own forgiveness, of course, in verse 12, but it's also asking the Lord to grant us a forgiving spirit as we have forgiven our debtors. Debts is a word for sins in this context. And if we pray, forgive us our sins as we've also forgiven those who sin against us, and if we do that with an unforgiving heart, we're actually asking God not to forgive us. If it's to be done as I do. Now this issue of a forgiving spirit is so important that of the six requests in this model prayer, it's the only one Jesus chose to elaborate on. And he does that starting in verse 14. For if you forgive other people when you sin against, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Author Daniel Doriani says of the apparent but not real earned forgiveness. It sounds like you earn forgiveness by doing something. He says, Jesus' point is that God forgives the penitent, the repentant. That is, if we understand how precious it is to be forgiven, if we know how much it costs God to forgive, then we will forgive others. The forgiven have motives to forgive. We thank God for His gift, we admire the beauty of His way, and we hope to do the same for others. The late pastor and author John Stott said this, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear in comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves we have a minimized view of our own. So we pray to be forgiving, and we are forgiving because we ourselves have been forgiven. If we are not forgiving, then it may be we've never experienced that forgiveness ourselves, and that's why I use the term forensic. Because when you first came to Christ, there were one-time amazing things that God did in that blessed moment. In the past, that have present effects, so thus the name forensic. And among those is our justification. When we came to Christ and we asked Him to forgive us and gave our lives to, to Him, in that moment, the Bible teaches this fancy term, we were justified, that is, God declared us righteous, even though we're not, based upon the complete righteousness of Jesus. We received that righteous declaration from God and we received forgiveness of sins as His children as a one-time forensic act when we came to Him. And so we are forgiving because our Father is forgiving. As we saw in our Scripture reading today, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as in Christ God forgave you. The very next sentence after that command to forgive 
says this, be imitators of God. Now, the word translated imitators is the word from which we get mimic. God says you're to mimic my actions in your actions. If you're really part of my family, then there needs to be a family resemblance. How do you show that resemblance? By being kind, compassionate, and forgiving one another. Now, the implications of this, then, should be obvious. Lack of forgiveness is characteristic not of believers, but of unbelievers. When we harbor bitterness or we seek vengeance, we're saying that God cannot be trusted to handle His universe. We're saying, in effect, God, there's an injustice here. I've been wronged, and I'm going to do something about it because I can't trust you to sort it out. But God says more than once in Scripture, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Elsewhere, the Bible laments that professing believers were taking each other to court. It says one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? You see, you can release an offense from your own hands because you know that God has it in His. You can release it in your own hands, from your own hands, because you know that God has it in His. And it should be our desire to forgive because that reflects the character of our Father. We are forgiving because our Father is forgiving, and we're forgiving because we have ourselves been forgiven. It is no accident that lead us to temptation is sandwiched between a request for forgiveness as the fifth of these six petitions and then Jesus' explanation of the importance of forgiveness right after, lead us not into temptation. You have the prayer to be forgiven in verse 12, then the request that we not be led into temptation in verse 13, and then verse 14, notice, begins with for or because. So forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for because, Jesus says in verse 14, if you forgive other people, your Father forgives you. If you do not, your Father will not forgive your sins. And one of the most serious sins into which we can be led is refusal to forgive. It's not the only one, but it is one of the most serious because it reveals so much of our character and is so far-reaching in its impact. Refusal to forgive is the work and desire of the devil. It has been said to err is human, to forgive is divine, but refusal to forgive is demonic. The more we recognize our own vulnerability to sin, the more forgiving we are. And that was the point of that parable that Pastor Larry read for us last week. It starts this way. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sends against me up to seven times? Peter was repeating a common teaching by the rabbis of his day that you forgive seven times, but not after that. Jesus corrected that false teaching. He answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Most translations say 70 times 7, not 77 times. But either way, Jesus is exaggerating it. So if you're multiplying right now, you're saying, hey, I like this translation better. <laughs> I, made a, I made a 
70 times 7, I used to have to go to 490, now I only got 77. So when you hit 491 or you hit 78, you now become the forgiveness Nazi. No forgiveness for you. <laughs> and then you've missed the point, though, like the rabbis did. And at the end of that parable, Jesus gives the warning. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. If we cannot forgive others, the relatively small sins, relative, relative to our sin against God, the relatively small sins they commit against us, it can only be because we have failed to receive forgiveness for the infinite debt that we owe to God. But conversely, if we understand the enormous debt of sin that God in Christ has canceled for us, we will understand that the wrongs we suffer are minuscule in comparison and we will readily forgive. Remember, friends, the Bible says this blessed line, Colossians 2, He forgave us all our sins. And our sins are too numerous to count. Each one is ultimately committed not first against another human, but against God. And that's why every sin requires God's forgiveness, which we received when we came to Christ. But even when it involves another human, it always is a violation of God's character first. So it's His forgiveness we need most and for which we should be the most thankful. And that's what David wrote about in the Psalms, in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, and the Apostle Paul quoted it in Romans chapter 4, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord, thanks be to God, will never count against them. We forgive because our Father is forgiving and because we have been forgiven. Now, I have an entire message just on that that I did in January of last year. And so if you're interested in this topic, I encourage you to listen to that at our website. And now after three weeks with this same outline, you finally get your take-home truth. <laughs> How we talk to God shows what we think of Him. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you that we are your children because we are such only because of your mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we are part of your family. Lord, we extol your sovereignty we extol and praise your character. We desire to be it, see it spread throughout your world. Lord, living in a fallen world is so tiresome, so difficult that we long for the time when sin is removed completely. And so we pray your kingdom come. In the meantime, Lord, we desire that your will be done in our lives individually and in the lives of those around us as it is in heaven. Lord, we ask you to forgive us, forgive me. And I need it daily, we need it daily to renew our intimate relationship with you, God our Father. We thank you for bidding us to come and do that and giving us that restored 
intimacy in the relationship with you. And Lord, we ask you to help us with our, not only our spiritual needs, keeping us from unrighteousness, leading us not into temptations where we are vulnerable, but thank you that we can come to you with our physical needs. What we need, you have promised to give to your children. That my God will supply all of your needs through his riches in Christ Jesus. And so we thank you for that promise. And Lord, we ask you to do that tomorrow and the day, day after. And Lord, we ask you uh, as well for our health and all of those in our church who are ailing. And we have had a spate of ailments right now. We miss our brothers and sisters who cannot be with us. And so we ask you, Lord, to heal them. We ask you to raise them up and to bring them back soon in the meantime to comfort them and their families. Help us, Lord, to be praying people and a praying church, a church that comes to you with our requests, marks them down so that for the purpose that we can give praise to you when you answer. Thank you for allowing us to bring these petitions before you and thank you in advance for what you're going to do with them. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song. Our closing song today, I just want to go back to this wonderful hymn. You guys sing it so well. Do I have piano? Is it on? Yeah, it's on? That's a shame. <clears throat> Maybe I need to turn it on. How about that? There we go. So we're going to sing a verse, a couple verses in a, cor a couple choruses of this. We'll sing the last chorus a cappella. And I listened to the live stream last week, and you could hear the congregation singing. You guys have been singing incredibly to the Lord and to one another, uh, which is so important as a church. Um, and um, we have these microphones up here. There's people listening at home. So I'm going to let you guys kind of take the, take the, well, I'll get you started. I'll play a little piano behind it. But let's all sing to one another and I'll kind of pull away and just have the voices sing together this morning as our congregation. We'll start with verse 1. Tis so sweet to Good. Let's all sing the chorus. Jesus, Jesus. sing the last verse I'm so glad I'm so glad
Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, hope for grace to trust him more. Amen. Wonderful singing this morning. Um, that does conclude our first hour. Second hour is going